Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Derek, good morning and welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show today. You have a very interesting background and I'm, I'm excited to talk about your book. So welcome to the show. Steve, appreciate the invite and appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit about your book, and I want to dive really deep into it. But just from an overview standpoint, first of all, congratulations. Um, your book is called Diary of a Black Man on Wall Street. Um, but before we dive in deeper, can you just share a brief overview of your book with the audience? Sure, Steve. Um, it, it's an autobiography about my life, uh, You know, starting from my being raised in Youngstown, Ohio, a blue-collar steel mill town, through nearly present day with a major emphasis on my 34-year Wall Street career. Throughout the book, uh, I highlight how race has played a part in my development uh, as a youth uh, through adulthood, you know, both professionally and uh, personally. Um, I weave in tales of travel. I've, I've traveled the world. I weave in tales of sports. You know, I played four sports. I played one sport at a pretty high level and uh, just general life experiences. You know, I think some parts of the book make you recoil some folks have told me they've actually had tears in their eyes. Some parts make you laugh out loud. And I guess that could bring some tears as well. And some parts uh, hopefully just make you contemplate uh, about situations and scenarios in life in general. So that's uh, in a nutshell what the book is about. It addresses um, my life. And I think um, most readers can relate to many of the instances uh, throughout my life, regardless of race. Yeah, that, that's definitely interesting. So what inspired you to write this book? I mean, like, have you thought about writing a book for a long time and finally you're like, okay, Derek, I just need to like, I need to get this done. Let me just do it. Or how did it come about? Well, I've thought about writing a book for a while, um, primarily about Wall Street. I didn't know how I was going to get done. One of the ways that I was able to write this book, uh, Steve, is that um, I'm a bit OCD in terms of information. And uh, I have kept personal and professional calendars since the late 70s and pretty detailed calendars uh, about where I was, what I was doing, who I was with. And it's not a diary because uh, I didn't enter things on a daily basis. And then I also kept travel diaries. Um, and those were diaries everywhere I went. I traveled around the world. And that created the basis for the book. You know, I, I could have thrown those diaries away or those calendars away many, many times, but I didn't. Uh, I kept them. And that was the basis for the book. And that created the outline. 
But what inspired me to write the book? Uh, probably three things. First of all, um, I wanted to inspire young people of color to pursue a career in financial services or, or corporate America in general. I also wanted to perhaps inspire a person of color that's in mid-career, if you will, you know, to push them through obstacles and persevere. So the first inspiration was to inspire young people of color. Secondly, uh, I wanted to enlighten. Uh, I wanted to enlighten the majority regarding what a person of color goes through on a daily basis, you know, whether that be in the community or the workplace. And uh, I have a number of friends of all colors, and many of my majority friends were absolutely shocked at some of the revelations in the book or in conversations in general. But I wanted to enlighten them as to what somebody that they deem as successful, what, what I've gone through. And many of them were just incredulous at some of the things I've gone through. And thirdly, I wanted to inform and, and give those people not familiar with Wall Street a picture of what goes on, uh, specifically on a sales and trading floor you know, a sort of behind the curtain look from an insider. So uh, I wanted to inspire, enlighten, and inform. And those are my three goals in writing this book. And hopefully I accomplish some of that, Steve. No, that's fascinating. And I, I definitely want to dive in deeper um, into the book because I, there's so much to unpack here. But before we get into it in more detail, I, I want to understand your childhood. So when you're growing up, were you always interested in business and finance? And can you expand on how your childhood made you into the businessman and author you are today? Uh, Steve, quite the contrary. Um, I had zero interest in business growing up. Um, I always wanted uh, through my adolescence to be a medical doctor. Um, and, and that was the case even through college. However, um, I guess toward the latter part of my college uh, tenure, uh, I realized that my heart wasn't truly into medicine. And, and based upon my grade transcript, my not becoming a doctor probably held down the mortality rate in the U.S. a little bit, too. Um, I just wasn't, I didn't think, cut out to be a medical doctor. And um, I think that was a wise choice for, for not only me, but <laughs> potential patients. Um, <laughs> I also realized in my first few jobs, Steve, uh, out of college, that whether that be in the NFL, uh, as a chemist, as a lobbyist on Capitol Hill, or just general life, that I had a real big void in my college education. You know, I double majored at Duke in uh, chemistry and English and never took a business course. And, and I was totally ignorant about most aspects of, of business. So certainly my English major exposed me to writing and composition and that laid a foundation for my being an author, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. I, I literally left Duke University with um, not understanding, you know, what marketing was, not understanding what strategic insights might be. Um, I, I literally had a big, big hole in my education. Interesting. So, so I'm a I'm a Duke alum as well. I I did uh, my MBA at the Fuca School of Business there. Oh, so, um, beautiful. Have that in common. Yes. Well, I spent my entire time at Duke uh, on Science Drive, which is where the biological sciences and chemistry and physics and the math buildings are, or in the Allen Building, which is where all my English courses were. I, I, like I said, I didn't step into a business course whatsoever. A big mistake from a curriculum standpoint. I mean, you've been on Wall Street for 34 years now, you said, right? Um, I stepped away in 2018, but my career was 34 years. I still have a foot in the Wall Street world. I'm on the... Um, Board of Trustees for the Charles Schwab's mutual funds and ETF scenario. So I still have a foot involved and I still do some lightweight consulting for some of my Wall Street friends, but uh, I am out of the nine to five Wall Street. 
So how do you go from that, like this, having this interest in the medical field to going from there to finance? How did you make that transition? What did that look like? I really, I went back to Fuqua to fill that business void. And that's when I was introduced to Wall Street. Uh, I didn't know what Wall Street was until I got to Fuqua. I honest, and that's the honest to God truth. Um, I didn't know what the stock market was. Um, I didn't understand interest rates. I didn't understand what the Federal Reserve did. But certainly Fuqua got me up and running really quick. And I literally left undergrad, took a couple shots in the NFL and the CFL, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I had this chemistry degree. I worked as a chemist for a little while and I realized, hmm, this is not me either. I can't see myself in a lab coat in a chem lab uh, the rest of my life either. So really, I went back to Fuqua, not with a career in mind, but really just to educate myself because I realized that going through life without some business discipline and expertise, and I was not going to reach um, many of my goals. And being ignorant was you know, not something that um, I embraced. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me ask you this. So as you're growing up, here you are, were you a goal-oriented person? Did you have like this chip on your shoulder to, to prove the world differently? Or were you like super ambitious or where did this like drive come within you? Well, um, I, I knew I wanted to be successful in whatever I did. And mediocrity was not something that was accepted in my family. And that was in a positive way. Um, so whatever I want, whatever I ended up doing, I wanted to try and be the best at it. So I wanted to prepare myself um, educationally to do whatever it was I wanted to do. And as I said, um, the biggest hole was from a business standpoint. You know, I had a good math and science background. Um, I thought I could write fairly well. I thought I could um, speak fairly well. But um, I realized through those various jobs, and just as an example, you know, you would say, well, why do you need business expertise um, in the NFL? Well, I remember the secretary for the Miami Dolphins asking me how many withholding allowances I wanted in my paycheck. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Right. Uh, I remember being uh, as a chemist and traveling to test potential anti-tumor agents around the country. And you, maybe you can blame this on the firm for not training me properly, but you know somebody asked me what the payback period was if this thing became commercial. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Mm-hmm. When I went to Capitol Hill uh, working as a lobbyist, you know all sorts of business terms are thrown around, and you know I had to do the fake it till you make it scenario. Uh, so I, I realized after three or four years of being out of undergrad, you know I got to go back and forget about what career I'm going to pursue. I just got to go back and educate myself about various business disciplines. And that led to Wall Street. That And the reason Wall Street was on the front burner was because there was an atmosphere on Wall Street that I could determine uh, from where I sat that was competitive, uh, as close to meritocracy as you might get in corporate America, um, sort of had a locker room mentality for better or for worse. And there were a lot of ex-athletes on Wall Street. And that's how I was introduced to Wall Street through some athletic, former athlete friends. So that's how I ended up on Wall Street. And that's what opened the door for me. Uh, but going back to Fuqua and going back to business school was the answer. That, that's interesting. So you, you discuss in your book and you, you say that you've experienced a lot of inequalities throughout your journey. Um, you touched on being taught to have thick skin. So can you explain this evolution behind having thick skin regarding inequality? And were you always this way or were there moments that tested your character more than others? Well, Steve, uh, first and foremost, um, I kept the big picture and my desire to be successful in whatever profession uh, in mind. You know, I, I treated slights and prejudices as, as annoyances. 
And I did that, you know, not only you know, in the working world, I did that growing up as well. And, and I kept a couple mantras in mind, uh, and they're very similar. The first mantra came from my dad. And um, I mentioned this in the book, and my dad mentioned it when I was at Duke um, after a certain situation that was racist. And my dad said, you know, don't let a racist determine your future. And I never forgot that. Uh, and then the second mantra is sort of related, and it came from my head football coach at Duke. And that mantra was, you determine your fate. Don't let someone else determine your fate. So don't be a follower. Don't uh, get involved in a situation where you're not leading and making the decisions. And those mantras to this day uh, lead me. Um, I don't let somebody else determine my fate. So uh, I looked at obstacles as opportunities to redirect and, and reset, if you will. And, and over time, uh, Steve, after you've witnessed and, and been the target of enough inequities, uh, as you call them, uh, you become callous. Uh, and the trick is not to become bitter and negative in general. Nobody wants to be around a bitter, negative person. Uh, but sometimes that can happen if you let all those things seep deep inside you. So I tried to make those situations into some kind of win for me rather than a win for my antagonist. As you mentioned, uh, there were certainly moments that tested me for sure, uh, but I kept my goal in mind. And I tried to learn from the situation and, and redirect. For instance, um, I mentioned in the book, when a salesperson at Morgan Stanley called me the N-word, part of my reaction was spontaneous and part of it was structured. That spontaneity was to let uh, everyone on the trading floor know that I wasn't having it and there would be consequences if it happened again. Mm -hmm. The other part was to not let someone else define me. So those incidents I had dealt with as, a, as say, an adolescent, I was somewhat prepared for them professionally. I didn't expect them professionally, but I was prepared for them. And uh, once again, I kept that in mind, you know, don't let a racist determine your fate. And I had some people um, that helped me in that regard. I mentioned in the book, there was an HR guy who I became very good friends with, who unfortunately has passed on. And he said, Derek, don't let a racist um, cost you your job, you know, because I really wanted to take this guy out. And mm -hmm. that was in the back of my mind. Don't let him determine your fate. So I'd still abide by those mantras today. Don't let a racist determine your fate and don't let someone else determine your fate. You determine your fate. No, I, and I love that. And it, it makes me think of just this idea of mindset, because this has been something I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, I think mindset is, you know, it, it can make or break our lives really when it comes down to it. So I'm, I'm curious of how your brain works. So let's dive into the brain of Derek here for a minute. It's a scary problem. <laughs> it could be a scary <laughs> thing, right? For all of us, right? We, we all have scary brains. But so when you think about it, like there's, there's all these scenarios and circumstances that we find ourselves in, right? Yeah. And, you know, whether it's, you know, comments about, you know, something to do with color or your religion or, you know, a, an attribute, you know, maybe it's your height or your weight or something that, you know, is, is out of your control. You know, I'm a, I'm a bald guy, right? I can't really control that. My hair started falling out when I was young. Um, <laughs> so there, there's all these things where like where we grew up there, there's all these things that, you know, people can just like latch onto and, and whether the external world is telling us things or whether internally we have these thoughts in our own narrative and our own story, right? That we tell ourselves over and over again. So I'm sure as you went through these different experiences, like you said, that you're one of your colleagues, you know, calling you that, and that was probably humiliating. It's probably infuriating. It's probably, you know, all these different feelings that it evoked. 
Um, and then I imagine your head, you know, is like repeating things over and over again, or like, like my brain, you know, like I have a story in my head, whether it's true or not, my brain is like constantly trying to validate that. So if I have a story, then my brain will look for things and say, where is it? Where's up? There's a piece of information. There's a piece of information. I'm going to validate it, um, and prove that I'm right. So it's like, sometimes our, our thoughts and our stories can be very damaging. So I, I want to go into your head and like, how do you manage that? Like, were you intentional with your thinking? And did you ever say, okay, stop with this thought, you know, I'm not going to go down this path or, or maybe talk a little bit about how you were able to like build this mindset that allowed you to do so many things such as like football and being on Capitol Hill and, and being this chemist and, you know, going to a great school and getting on wall street and everything else. Uh, talk a little bit about your brain here, the brain of Derek. Uh, like I said, that's a scary proposition. But um, I honestly, uh, Steve, I think athletics helped me an awful lot. I started playing football at a very early age, uh, six years old. And uh, through high school, I played, you know, four sports. And just that competition, just that uh, knowledge that, you know, things could get better. Um, you might be down now, but uh, you'll have an opportunity to come back. That resiliency that I got from athletics allowed me to always look around the corner thinking that, you know, tomorrow could be a better day. So I I hark back to athletics and it's not about, as I try to explain to people that don't, that haven't played sports or don't understand it. It's not about just throwing a ball around. It's about camaraderie. It's about getting up when you've been knocked down. It's about looking, you know, being positive, thinking that, you know, we still got the the second half or the fourth quarter um, to, to come back. And it's just that willingness to, to get back up after you get knocked down. We all get knocked down. I got knocked down many, many times, but I always had that positive mindset and I still do that things will get better. I mean, if they don't get better, it's not because I didn't try to make them better. So I've always been a, a positive, I won't say opportunistic, but when the opportunity has been there, I've been able to, and mo- most times, um, grab onto it and, uh, and ride it for uh, a good ways. So my, my brain is one that um, reeks positivity, that reeks um, that there is uh, an answer somewhere around the corner and uh, that we'll get through this. So I can honestly tell you, Steve, maybe once or twice in my life, I've been depressed and that was a short term depression. I mean, I'm talking days, not weeks. And I think a lot of that has to do with my mindset of being competitive, being positive, looking at the glass half full, and it's carried me throughout my life. And, um, you know, it's given me a disposition of can do versus can't do. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. No, I, I love that. And I, you know, I agree. I think like athletics, um, for me, it, it's running, running has, has saved my life in so many different ways. I've been running for the last, I'd say, you know, 12 years or so. Uh-huh. And if I'm going through a difficult time in life or if I'm struggling with something, you know, once I get out there and I run and I get my body moving and those endorphins going, um, and just, you know, being able to test my mindset, 
you know, the days where I'm like, oh, I don't feel like getting out there and running. It's cold. I'm tired. My legs are sore, whatever it is. And then, you know, pushing myself to do it. And that, that same type of mindset and discipline carries forward in different parts of my life. I mean, it, it's been huge. So I, I can yeah. relate to what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. We all have a basic structure and uh, I try to stay within that structure and, you know, it gets pinged every now and then it gets chipped every now and then. But um, if, if you know who you are and what you are um, and you have that good foundation, it's, it's, it's easy to push that away and, and look forward. Absolutely. So can you recall a particular situation um, that was your like aha moment throughout your journey? Um, I, I had, I'm just, I think everybody has a few aha moments, um, but I had a few throughout my, my career. Uh, probably, uh, Steve, the first one was at my first Wall Street stop, Morgan Stanley. Um, I was doing well as a senior equity trader on the block desk. I was putting up some good numbers and I was going up the promotional ladder, uh, being treated, you know, fairly well. Um, thought I'd, you know, start my career, Wall Street career, Morgan Stanley, and end it there, you know, 25, 35 years later. I mentioned in the book uh, someone, and that, that someone had to be a member of management, otherwise they wouldn't have had this document, but someone left a sheet in the bathroom in a toilet stall on the trading floor showing everyone's bonus in equity trading. We, we all sort of filed in there one at a time um, as word spread around the floor. You know, when I saw it, uh, I, I knew I was I knew I was underpaid relative to near, nearly everyone else. Just I just had that feeling. But that piece of paper and that scoop revealed to me just how much the deficit was. Uh, so that's when I realized that was my aha moment. I realized I would have to change my work address to hopefully get paid like, like my white counterparts. I had an aha moment at, at every firm and um, they are all mentioned uh, in the book. Uh, there were moments where I said, hmm, okay, it's time for me to pack up and move. Every firm I went to, I thought, okay, this is the firm I'll be at for the rest of my career. But um, there was an aha moment at every firm. I left four firms uh, after various aha moments. Uh, the fifth and last firm, BNY Mellon, um, it wasn't an aha moment. It wasn't my decision. You know, I was terminated. So I didn't have to make a decision um, at the last firm, but um, a, a number of situations where I said, okay, um, it's, it's time for some, a little different scenery. So help me understand that. I mean, because the two big things that I'm focusing on right now in my life are developing and harnessing greater empathy, right? It, for so many different reasons and compassion. So I, I believe like empathy is, you know, you truly understand, you seek to understand people on a deeper level because you care about them. Right. And you, you want to walk in their shoes and you want to understand, you know, how they feel in their perspective and everything else that that's really important to me. And then the compassion part, that's the second piece. Compassion is like the action on it, right? Like you can sit back and be an empathetic person and not do anything about it. You just soak in all this empathy. But to me, it's like, okay, if I can understand people better, if I could truly understand their feelings and their journey and everything else, then I can act through compassion and try to make a difference, try to bring mm -hmm. a little bit of joy to people's lives, show a little bit more kindness, just make the, the world a better place. So from sure. an empathy standpoint, help me, help me understand what is that like, you know, to be a person of color, because I'm not. And if you were to sit here and explain like, Hey, Steve, this is what it feels like. Like, how would you, how do you try to summarize that? I, I know it's made up of thousands of experiences and 
and thoughts and everything else, but like, help me in the audience, try to understand what that is truly like being a person of color in this world, trying to be successful in business, what you think you deserve as a person, regardless of what your skin color is, which is just crazy to me. Right. Help me understand that. Well, uh, to be honest with you, Steve, it's, it's exhausting for, for starters. And that's another thing that uh, over the last sort of two years of racial reckoning, if you will, uh, I've had a number of conversations with um, a number of my you know, white friends, many of them Duke related, many of them Fuqua related, and uh, tried to help them understand. Um, and I bring this out in the book, what it's like to be a minority in this world. And that comes to um, even discussions of white privilege. And there are some that say, well, Derek, you know, you were very privileged uh, growing up. You, you went to um, great undergrad um, on an athletic scholarship. You went to Fuqua on a scholarship. Um, you got to Wall Street. And uh, I said, you know what? I was very lucky. I worked hard. I was very lucky. Things um, worked out for me. But let me explain to you what white privilege is, and everybody has their own definition, I guess, but my definition of white privilege, and this is how I uh, addressed it with him. I said, well, you don't have to think about, you know, when you go to a cocktail party um, or some gathering that um, there's not someone in there that looks like you, thinks like you, has a background like you. Um, it's a privilege to know, walk into a place and know that there's somebody in there that looks like you and maybe has thoughts like you um, and has a similar background. So that, to me, is some aspect of white privilege. Um, and they can't experience that because they are of the majority. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked into um, a social scenario like that and I'm the only one uh, or one of two. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, um, I said, you don't have to think about driving up, um, there's a, a parkway here called the Taconic Parkway in the Hudson Valley or any other road and being very cognizant of going, not going over 55 miles an hour, because if you go, if you get pulled over, um, there's a 5% chance that it goes sideways just because of your race. And I said, Really? And I said, I can tell you um, personally, and many of my friends can tell you that we don't like to get pulled over because things happen. And all you really have to worry about, most likely, unless you're inebriated or unless you got drugs in the car or handgun or whatever, you really just have to worry about getting a, a, a speeding ticket or a violation ticket. That's not the case for me. So I drive very carefully, even though I do have a lead foot. But if I get pulled over, uh, I'm breaking out in a sweat immediately. You don't have to think about um, walking into Saks Fifth Avenue, um, and I mentioned this in the book, dressed in a nice suit and tie, uh, carrying a briefcase and having, you know, somebody follow you around the store because they think maybe maybe I do look like a thug. (laughs) Maybe I do look like uh, a thief, Uh, but you don't have to think about that. So as I went through some of these scenarios, and as I mentioned, they're, they're all in the book, I said it's different being on this planet despite, you know, what you deem as my success, despite what you deem as my um, privilege, it's different for a person of color. And that's the white privilege. It's not necessarily that you got advances that I wasn't able to latch on to, but it's people look at you differently. People treat you differently. And as I mentioned before, that can be exhausting. You know, when I get home in the evening, well, when I was working, I used to have to decompress for about 15 minutes. You know, I'd go to the gym 
probably three or four uh, nights a week. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke or whatever, but I wore out some, some gym equipment, um, just relieving stress, just, you know, taking a deep breath. Jeez. Okay. I got through today without somebody calling me a name. I got through today without somebody questioning my intellect. I got through today without somebody wondering if I got to Duke, went to Duke uh, on an affirmative action plan. So it's, 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 it's different. And unless you sit in those, those shoes, um, it's hard for you to, you know, to grasp that. And uh, I've had a lot of friends, thankfully, that have reached out to me. A lot of my white friends have reached out to me to try to understand this. And I think they, they have a much better understanding based upon what I've told them. And hopefully I got some of that through in the book as well. Yeah, because I mean, I can't imagine what that's like to, you know, to have to overthink everything, right? Because to me, you're right. I go to a social gathering and I just, I just go, right. I may be a little anxious because it's a new setting. I may not know people, but the other stuff that you're talking about doesn't even cross my mind. Right. Or if I'm driving, you know, I'm, I'm not worried if I get pulled over or whatever, but let me ask you this, Derek, do you think, what, why do you think that exists? I mean, cause I I'm one to, to give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. And I think people have good intentions. And I think there's a few like psychopaths out there and sociopaths, but I think right. Most people are not malicious, but from your perspective, is it this, are, are people just malicious? Are people ignorant? Are they insecure? Are they, you know, what are they threatened? What is it that you think brings about these behaviors? Well, part of it is um, ignorance, as you mentioned. And that was one thing that I was able to do in the last two to three years was to educate many of my majority friends. And, you know, I, I have I have great white friends. I have friends that, and that sounds like a cliche, but you know, I have as many white friends as I do black friends. And um, all of them, as you said, are sympathetic. They're, they're empathetic. They're not malicious people, but they just don't understand. They, and they, and they haven't had to understand and they haven't uh, witnessed and, and been in situations. And, you know, the whole George Floyd thing illuminated a lot of this for a lot of folks. Uh, and it was shocking. And the response from the majority, in my view, has been really, really positive. And I think we've turned the corner. we got a long ways to go, but I think we've turned the corner and, and people are very receptive. I think a lot of it just comes back to systemic racism. And I've had to define what that is to a number of my friends who didn't think either it existed or it was exaggerated, or it only happened um, to, you know, a, a small portion of the uh, people of color community. And uh, I've had to explain to them what systemic racism is, uh, in, in my view, and outlining the book, what systemic racism is, you know, how it manifests itself. And, and I mean, do you think going along that same point, I mean, do you think it's more tyranny by the minority? And what I mean by that is, you know, the people that are making the comments, the people that are like acting, you know, in just cruel ways, right? Do you think that's more the the minority that's oh, doing that? Or, I, I absolutely think it's a minority. I don't think the majority of people are that way at all. And it just uh, ruins it for everybody else because yes. that that's the the way I look at it is like I have I, I don't care you know, who a person is, right? Like you could be any color of the rainbow. You could have any sexual orientation. I mean, you could have whatever, like I, I love people for who they are. I don't care about these other things. And um, so, I mean, it, it blows my mind when I hear this stuff. And then sometimes I, I feel like, dang, you know, we, we kind of get a bad rap for, you know, the actions of just a few, right? 
Yeah. Um, that's yeah. what it seems like to me, but I, I don't know your perspective. You may, you may feel like it's, Hey, it's the vast majority and it's the minority that are actually kind and empathetic and they don't, they don't care about these other things and they don't judge people accordingly. No, I, I definitely think it's a minority. And, you know, like I said, you know, a few ruin it for a lot. Uh, I definitely think it's that, but it also goes back to the systemic part. Um, and if I can just touch on that, you know, I, I outline systemic racism in my book. And I think, you know, as a society, we can improve by eliminating systemic racism. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, I said that to a number of my friends and, and I explained it to them this way. Uh, one of my friends says, there, there's no racism isn't, isn't systemic. And I said, OK, well, let me just define it for you. It's it's being disadvantaged in at least five ways that I can come up with. Um, and he said, well, please explain, because I want to understand this. I don't think we have a system that is inherently racist. And I said, OK, hear me out. I said, well, the first way that we're disadvantaged as people of color is from a justice standpoint. You know, I, I think the world is aware that, you know, the court system is slanted against people of color and has been that way since the beginning of time. Uh, it's no accident. Um, I threw some stats at him. I said, it's no accident that black Americans represent over 30 percent of the prison population, which is nearly triple uh, their share of the U.S. adult population. I think the black population in the U.S. is around 13, 14 percent. You know, whites account for about 30 percent of the prison population as well. But this is a divisor, if you will, of the U.S. population rather than a multiplier for the black population. Mm-hmm. Um, the second way is uh, education, uh, educational opportunity disadvantage. You know, for the longest, we weren't allowed to go to certain schools. Um, you know, Duke admitted their first um, black applicants, I think, what, 1963. Um, so we've got a lot of catching up to do from an educational standpoint. So that educational disadvantage um, is, is systemic. The healthcare disadvantage, that's the third one. Uh, and the pandemic only exacerbated that difference. Um, I think um, if you talk to any people of color, they will tell you that they get a little different healthcare treatment than the majority do. Um, so that's that's been going on for a long time. And as I said, the pandemic has only exploited that. You know, housing, uh, that's the fourth way. Uh, people of color are still being discouraged to live in certain neighborhoods. And that just blows my mind. And I had a situation that I mentioned in the book um, that I had to justify that I actually live in the house that I'm in now. Granted, that was 20 years ago, but that mindset still exists. There are certain neighborhoods, maybe they don't blatantly say we don't want you living here, but there are certain neighborhoods that you're not ex- you're excluded from. When I was trying to find a, um, a co-op in, uh, in Manhattan, my broker, who was white, said, Derek, you're not going to be the first black to move into this building. So forget about that building. You know, that wasn't too long ago. And that still exists. And the fifth way uh, that I think we're disadvantaged uh, and which might be the the most important is economics. And if you got this one right, you you can lessen the impact of the four disadvantages uh, I previously mentioned. You can get a better lawyer. uh, You can go to schools regardless of of cost, if you will. Uh, You can get better health care and you can live where uh, the dollar reigns rather than the, the color of your skin. So those are five ways that I think we're disadvantaged and it's systemic. I, I do think it's getting better, but justice, education, healthcare, housing, and economics. 
And when I broke that down to my friends that way, that's, geez, I never thought about it. And I said, you know, to one of my friends, I said, Bob, you know why you never thought about it? Because you didn't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. I think about this on a day in and day out basis, uh, wherever I go. And he goes, geez, that must be exhausting. I said, there you go. There you go, Bob. Exhausting. Uh, you just can't pack up and go. You got to think about what the ramifications might be and whether a situation goes sideways. Uh, but I did say, you know, on the on the on the positive side, I said, I do think it's getting better. You and I wouldn't have had this conversation 10 years ago. We're having it now. And I'm having it with a lot of my friends and your friends. Uh, so communication and understanding the other person's plight in life. And that's another thing I try to do throughout, Steve, whether I was managing people or talking to people, I always try to put myself in somebody else's shoes. Sure. And that's what I've asked you know, a number of my majority friends to do, put yourself in my shoes. And how would that grate on you? And why do you think, you know, I just didn't want to go to that cocktail party Friday after a tough week of work. You know, I I just didn't want to have to spend any more brain cells trying to operate in that venue. And it wasn't because I was being antisocial. I'm a pretty social person. It's just because I just didn't have any more brain cells to be able to navigate that situation. Yeah, you're just worn out. I, I can I can completely understand that. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I had a podcast guest on. Her name's Jessica Jackley, and she has a company uh, that she just launched. It's called Altruist, and the idea is uh, it's like volunteering in a box. So each month they they send out a different theme, and the first month was uh, homelessness, and that was the topic. So the kids and I uh, have two kids, five year old and eight year old. Uh, mm-hmm. We sat down one Sunday and in this box, there's pamphlets and you read about homelessness, what it is and what are the real causes and some statistics. And then you get the opportunity to build like this little house out of these miniature cinder blocks and talk about how the majority of the world lives in these little huts, makeshift huts with dirt floors. Right. And mm-hmm. um, it was great to do this with my kids because I want them to be more empathetic. I want their eyes to be open to the world. That's really important. I've traveled around the world a lot. I've seen a lot. Um, a lot more to experience, but I want this instilled in them. And it's, it's just interesting when you, you talk about like homelessness or you talk about um, racism, or you talk about these other issues that exist in our country. A lot of it is like, people don't understand. So like the homelessness part, I mean, most people walk by um, a homeless person or they'll step over them to go buy their, you know, $6 latte. Yeah. And they, they want to help. They don't know how to help. Or sometimes they have these thoughts like, oh, you know, if they just go get a job and, and get off the, the concrete here. Um, but what most people don't understand is that it's, it's way much more than that, right? It's, it's very structural, right? Like if you walk by somebody and you give them $5, yes, that, that's great, right? That's great that you help them out and they could go buy some food. But I think like, you know, that's a, that's a win-lose proposition. You know, you're $5, yeah, $5 less in your pocket. And that person has $5 more, um, or it's just a temporary type fix instead yeah. of trying to fix the structural piece of it. That that's, what's broken. Like the structure is broken yeah. and in business, I'm a big structure guy. Like when I go to organizations and I turn them around, like it's all about the structure, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you could have the, the worst structure in the world and you put the best person in there, high performing uh, people in there. And, you know, the structure will always beat them out. Right. Yep, I agree. Um, and I think the same thing is what you're saying. I mean, there's, I, I think awareness is important, right? Like, and I think empathy is like the catalyst to all this change, because mm-hmm. if you can't even understand what the heck it feels like, 
you know, to live in somebody else's shoes and to experience what they experience um, from their viewpoint. Um, if you can't feel a piece of that, or if you can't understand that, then there's going to be no change, but then it gets into like, how do you change things structurally instead of just put like little band-aids on everything? Does that make right. sense? What are your thoughts? Yeah, on that? Absolutely. Yep. Um, structure, as you said, vitally important. Um, and that's when I get back to the systemic racism, uh, we can do all the things on the surface, but until we uh, address the judicial system, until we address, you know, racist, racist housing issues, until we uh, open up education to all, until we, you know, provide health care um, you know, across the board in an equal way, uh, until, you know, people get paid uh, in equal fashions. Those are structural issues. And um, we can do a lot of things on the sides. But uh, until we get to the foundation, um, it'll just be a cosmetic change. Yeah, I agree. Well, let me ask you this. Um, I mean, just hearing your story and, um, and talking with you, you know, I, I imagine that you and I share some similarities. And, and that is, you know, when I was a kid, all somebody had to say to me is say, Steve, you can't do that. And it's yeah. like, okay, game on. Thank you so much for giving me that fuel because I'm going to prove you wrong, right? right. I'm going to go out there and do this. And and I grew up in a, a very you know socially economically challenged family. Um, you know, my mom was um, single for the majority of my childhood, and and she was out there working two jobs, and we didn't have a lot of money, and my friends did, and that always sucked. I mean, it was. Yeah. going over to my friend's house. I'm like, Hey, you got two parents in your household. You live in this nice house. And it's like, I'm sharing a, a bedroom with my brother. And you know, there's six of us in a three bedroom house. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that, that was always a, a challenge. And, but what I said to myself is like, you know what, I'm going to prove the world wrong. I'm going to show them that I'm way more than this. And all the people that said, you can't do this. I'm going to show them that I can and I imagine the same thing's true from you. Here you are coming from Ohio, right? You're not coming from the Northeast. You're not coming from like, you know, this, this background with your with your silver spoon and and um, you know, getting into to Wall Street because of you know you just woke up yeah. and eased yeah. your way in, right? You had to work really hard. So um, I imagine you have the same kind of mindset where you're like, look, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to you know, I'm going to do all these different things. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to be successful. When I get knocked down, I'm going to get back up. So that, that's great. Right. And I think the people that have that mindset, they can push ahead. But what about the people that are sitting here, Derek, and they're thinking, look, you know, Steve's right. Derek's right. It's systemic. It's structural. I can't do anything about it. Like I'm, I'm living in this, you know, crappy neighborhood. I can't change anything about that. I can't change my skin color. I can't change, you know, my parents' economic situation. I'm just stuck. I'm stuck. And they feel like giving up. Like, what, what would you say to somebody like that to like, give them the same feel that you had? Well, uh, it goes back to my dad and my book focuses an awful lot on my dad, who was a man ahead of his time. And I think one of the greatest gifts that a parent can give their offspring is confidence. And uh, I didn't hear in my household, you can't uh, or you won't Um, never. And you could talk to my two, two other brothers and my sister as well. We just didn't hear that. We were it was always about confidence, always about positivity. Um, and my dad instilled in me specifically just a ton of confidence and the ability to do whatever I wanted to do. So I really didn't grow up trying to prove other people wrong. Um, I just did it. And I knew that there was no reason why I couldn't be close to the best or not the best athletically. 
I knew there was no reason why I couldn't be close to the best academically. Um, I knew there wasn't a reason why I couldn't have, you know, maybe um, one of the best looking girls as a girlfriend. Right. Uh, and, it was, and it wasn't cockiness because um, I don't think um, most people that know me would say I'm cocky, but I just had tremendous confidence and I never, I never accepted negativity. My, my father shielded me away from it. Even if a relative was someone that's, you know, um, instilled negativity, my dad kept me away from him. He says, I don't want you around those people. You're around positive, can-do people. And I guess the first instance of that was when I changed elementary schools. I went from a school sort of in the hood, if you will, when my parents moved to another side of town. And I went to a school filled with kids that were achievers. And that's all their parents uh, cared about was love and achieving. And, you know, I did that at a very early age. And I also think, you know, there's all sorts of uh, types of confidence. Um, there's residual confidence uh, that you get from doing something right. There's uh, instant confidence that uh, I got this right. I can do it again. And I just grew up very, very confident. And I had a lot of success. And that helped to build on that confidence. So I really didn't go through life, um, maybe different than you did, Steve, trying to prove people wrong. I just thought, okay, you know what? I belong here. Uh, I've worked hard to get here and uh, it's going to take, you know, a, b- a bunch of oxes pulling me the other way to, to have me go the other way. But um, I attribute that to my dad, total confidence in whatever you're doing. Don't give up and persevere. Um, there'll be tough times, but um, that streak in you is a thing that's going to keep you burning. And I like that. I like that contrast, you know, going from my perspective where it's like, hey, I, I'm going to prove people wrong. I'm going to go out there and show them you know, that I, I have this worth that I deserve these things and, you know, work hard to, to earn that. Um, it, it sounds like you came more from a place where you're like, Hey, I deserve this. I'm worthy of these things. And, you know, that built your confidence. And as you went out there and acted and did more and more and had, you know, opportunities to be successful, that just solidified it and just reinforced, you know, your confidence in that whole cycle. Correct. Yeah, it was never a, a prove to somebody else scenario for me. Uh, I have a lot of friends that you know are in that mindset, and obviously you are as well. But that wasn't um, my underpinning at all. I just was confident I can do this. You know, I certainly had my moments where I, I wondered about certain things, but um, I just really, you know, hark back to you know that confidence and you can do it and and that positivity. Do you believe that that's true, right? Even if there's issues structurally in society, which I think there always will be, right? I mean, we'll fix one thing and then there'll be issues somewhere else. Do you think that people can just work hard and achieve whatever they want? Or do you think that the structural issues, the systemic issues hold people back and that's just part of a, you know, part of life? Yeah, well, um, I think you can, but there are, you know, I was, I was extremely lucky. There's no doubt about it. You know, I had the right tutelage along the way. I had things fall my way. I had, um, and, I, and I mentioned a number of these in the book, I had a number of missteps that thankfully weren't fatal. I had some people, both majority and minority, that looked out for me and gave me a break. Uh, so I was lucky, but I do know a number of people, um, a number of people that I grew up with that didn't have that luck. Uh, and, you know, there was somebody that was faster than me, stronger than me, smarter than me, and fell by the wayside for whatever reason. And um, I was extremely lucky in a lot of ways. Um, so I think the man above and luck had something to do with it. But I also think that others that had more on the ball 
physically, mentally, socially, whatever, um, were struck down by the system, if you will. And, and I feel for those folks. And, and that could have been me. But, you know, as I said, a luck played a, a big role in, you know, a lot of my success. And there's the old adage that you create your own luck. To some degree you do, but there's some things that definitely fell my way that if it hadn't fallen my way, who knows where the hell I would have ended up. So I definitely attribute some of that to the man above and, and, and some other non-human being, if you will. Sure. So if somebody's sitting here and they're they're inspired, they're motivated to change, then they they want to do something to improve. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, I really want to eliminate inequality, um, whether in myself or in my organization, and they want to boost diversity and inclusion. Do you have any tips to share of, of how somebody can get started? Or is there like one thing somebody could do that would make a huge difference? I'll tell you what my experience has been uh, as to why diversity, equity, and inclusion fails. And we could sort of work backwards, if you will. Um, and I've said this to a couple corporations that don't have the perspective that I have. And quite frankly, I was surprised that they didn't have some of this, but you could just tell by the response of the CEO or senior management that it's, this is sort of new ground to them. Um, but then again, I don't expect them to have my perspective because they haven't lived in my shoes. But let me tell you why I think DE&I uh, fails. Uh, firstly, middle management is the problem in corporate America. I think most CEOs and um, even their management teams realize that diversity and inclusion is not only good for business, it's the right thing to do. It's more profitable. You need uh, different thoughts, different mindsets at the table. But I think that dissipates when you get down to middle management. And I've seen that at every firm I've worked at. When it gets down to middle management, they haven't bought in and for whatever reason. But I also think the, the way to respond to that is to tie progress or the lack of progress as it relates to diversity and inclusion to compensation. Secondly, once again, speaking to middle management, because I think the CEOs of the world, you know, some are better than others, but Middle management, I, need, I think you need to get them involved in the recruitment of people of color so that they have some skin in the game. I've even made this mistake myself. You know, so you, you don't parachute a person of color in without middle management's buy-in beforehand. That's a recipe for non-support and failure. And I'm guilty of that one time myself. I didn't get middle management involved. They could care less about the person I brought in and that person I had to pay an awful lot of attention to, which I normally would anyway. But I had to pay an inordinate amount of attention because they were sort of left out there on a raft by themselves. So you get middle management involved and get them bought in. Mentorship programs. Now, most entities realize this is important, but they must realize that people uh, of color are sometimes, I say, like a mouse in a snake cage. You know, they, they need friendly eyes and ears from those that have a vested interest and are looking out for them and helping them avoid, as I said, the fatal mistakes. And a mentor can pull your coattail, pull you aside, say, you know what, do this, don't do that. Make sure you do this, don't do that. Uh, and avoid those fatal mistakes. So we don't have a lot of mentorship situations um, for people of color at a lot of these firms. I think a fourth way is to provide some upward opportunities for development. You know, in any situation, if you don't feel the love, you get disinterested and you end up leaving or, or your performance suffers and you get terminated, terminated or, or stagnant. So 
provide some upward opportunities for development. Nobody wants to go into a corporation and not be able to see the next rung up and, and feel like they're stuck. And another way to do that, uh, and I mentioned this to a corporate entity, is to allow your people of color to be showcased around the firm so that if no opportunity for advancement exists in your area, someone else may have seen that person do a presentation and take a liking to them and see this talent and be able to place it within their organization. So one of the things I used to do, if the presentation didn't require me to, to make the presentation, um, I brought one of my underlings with me to showcase them so someone else could see them. And this also helped in their development. And it also helped to, as I said, showcase them to somebody else. And I can't tell you how many times maybe we've had to scale back. Okay, guys, trading volumes are down. The revenue isn't there. We're going to have to move some people around. And someone in another department says, you know what? I remember that person doing a presentation. You know, I might be able to use somebody with some trading expertise in this area. So those are five ways that I think DNI fails and ways to get around it. So at the end of the day, uh, I would say, you know, management just needs to realize uh, this edict as well. If, if you don't see it, you don't believe you can be it. And what I mean by that is the best way to recruit people of color is to have people of color in those seats. And it's sort of a cat and a mouse situation. But I said this to um, a very prominent Wall Street firm. Uh, I said, um, if you get some people in the seat and you keep them there, that will encourage more to come. And I harked back to, I, I gave an example, a sporting example. I said, you know, there were very few black quarterbacks in the NFL back in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and that's because, you know, I even saw it in my level. Nobody wanted to be, nobody, none of my black friends wanted to be a quarterback because they didn't think they could, they could reach the next level, whether it be college or, uh, or the pros, because they didn't see any. Well, you know, you turn on television now and every team has a black quarterback. Um, sure. That may be a slight exaggeration. But once again, if you don't see it, you don't believe you can be it. So those are some of the tips that I have in terms of boosting DNI and being successful at it. No, and I love that and, and such valuable tips. And, and just this overall conversation has been so enlightening. And I really appreciate you, you know, sharing some of your in, insights and especially your book. I, I think what a, a great accomplishment to get that book out there and to uh, share your story and your journey with the world. So everybody who's listening, check it out. It's called Diary of a Black Man on Wall Street by J. Derek Penn. And um, yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck, Derek, as you continue to get out there um, and show your example to the world and just let your, your light shine forth. Well, Steve, I appreciate the time. Uh, I appreciate your podcast, Strategic Financial Leadership. Uh, it was a pleasant conversation and one that we need to have um, across the board. Um, as we communicate more and more, I think more people understand it. And as you said, empathy and compassion come along with that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Thanks again, Derek. Thank you, Steve. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best. Thank you.